Let us pray. Jesus, as you began to pray, teaching your disciples the way that we are to approach your Father, our Father. Jesus, you reminded us that we need to begin with recognizing that our God is holy. Our God is without sin. Our God is beyond what we are and who we are. And yet, those two beautiful words that we have, by your grace, because of the work of your Son, Jesus, our Father, who art in heaven, holy, holy, holy is our God. Father, as we acknowledge your holiness, we also must acknowledge our sinfulness. And Father, the two have nothing to do with one another. We would be banished from a holy God's presence, deservingly sent to hell, apart from the love and the grace that is yours, Father, that you demonstrated to us by sending your Son on a rescue mission for sinners like us to find us, to rescue us, to shed your holy blood for us so that crimson-stained sinners like us could be made white as snow and filled with your Spirit and entered into your family and made beautiful in your sight. So when we pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, we are acknowledging the truth of who you are and your character. But we, as your children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, have the right, the permission, the joy of saying, Our Father, holy is your name. And holy are your children in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for that great joy. Thank you for the privilege of knowing your holiness and calling you daddy. We pray this in Christ's powerful name. Amen. God continues to bless. We have two roses up here indicating that our family is growing yet again. Thank God for a fertile church. Amen. Thank God for covenant uh, children uh, that God loves. And it's so good to see his continued blessing to us. We have two. One rose for the Cavelli family. Uh, they have, let me see if I can get this right, Chaley. Chaley Marie Cavelli. Uh, God has blessed that family with two boys. Elisa and Joe have two boys, Mason and Tyler. Now they have a girl to bring some class to that family. Now they had class. But we're excited for them. Also, Brad and Meredith Smith, uh, longtime members here, John and Nancy Smith's uh, grandchildren. Brad and Meredith are with our daughter church that we planted, a city church. But we want to say, hey, they're still part of the family. And God's blessing to them with uh, Avery Catherine, another girl in the mix. It's two daughters for them. Is that correct? So, golly, how well great our God is by blessing them and blessing us. Remember, we are...
And every time God adds to our family, we really have reason to celebrate and reason to rejoice. If you're visiting with us, we're on a journey together this summer. This summer, Orangewood is doing something difficult, something few churches may want, not want to do. Uh, we're on a journey together looking at the ten deadly sins of Orangewood. And if you are visiting with us, you may notice that the, our ten deadly sins may be very common to all churches because these are true with most churches like us. We are going to wrestle with certain things. And today, another toughie. We've looked at some difficult ones. Today we're going to wrestle with the sin of self-righteousness. Those things that come into our life, even our theology, even our, our background. Can you believe even the color of our skin at times or our nationality? Those things that make us want to puff our chest out and say, we're just a little bit better. Those things that make us say that maybe God owes us something. Maybe we really deserve this holy God's love. And you know, the amazing thing about self-righteousness is I think that, again, it's another one of those sins that, that most of us would see and say, okay, yeah, I realize it's a sin. But we have to realize how repugnant self-righteousness is to Jesus. How offensive it is to the gospel. How contrary it is to true Christian living. Because self-righteousness is one of those sins that the church doesn't always do a very good job purging or dealing with. And oftentimes we look at piety in one's life and we lift that up and oftentimes leaders like myself, pastors and myself, live our lives with a self-righteous air that runs into the face of the truth of the gospel and why Jesus came to rescue sinners like me. And so this is an important one. and We really need to wrestle with what does God have for us? But let me begin with a question. The last several weeks I've been asking you a question. I have another one to begin with this week. And it's this. What are you qualified to do? What are you qualified to do? You know, we live in, in a world, in a society, where our whole life we are judged to see if we're qualified. As kids, are you qualified enough to, to make the honors class? Are you qualified enough to be an AP? Are you qualified enough to, to compete on this team or that team? Are you qualified? Do you have the skills? Do you have what it takes? And then through our life, are you qualified for an Ivy League school? Nowadays, are you a qualified to be a Gator, for goodness sakes? And how difficult it is to get into the University of Florida or other educations. Are you qualified? And then we face the, the marketplace, putting together a resume, knocking on doors and meeting with human resources directors that may say, you're not qualified. You don't have what it takes. Or that may say, you are qualified for this job. And you can negotiate a pay raise. Then, how about those things like credit cards? Certain color credit cards. Filling out applications. Our whole life, are you qualified? Are you qualified to carry around an American Express card? A gold card? A platinum card? And somehow, we live in a society by the color of a card we pull out of our wallet may indicate certain status, certain wealth, certain uh, attainment. 
as if our lives should be reflected in what color credit cards we have in our wallet. Are you qualified? And then we got to ask the question, the ultimate question, are we qualified for God's love? What qualifies us for heaven? What qualities will God look to to say, yes, they merit my love. They merit my acceptance. They're going to be ushered into heaven. I was sent a story this week about a man who uh, went to heaven and he went to the pearly gates and saw St. Peter. Now, I have a hard time telling stories like this because uh, uh, right away we have some interesting theology about pearly gates and St. Peter. But we, can you work with me a little bit? Have you heard these stories before? I bet you have. They meet St. Peter and St. Peter asks him a question, which, by the way, he never would ask. And it wouldn't be him anyway. It'd be Jesus. But let's keep going. He says... What have you done to merit? What have you done to deserve? What have you done to really merit the doors being open and entrance into uh, the pearly gates? He said, well, one time I was on my way to uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota. And as I was there, uh, I came across a gang of, of, of uh, uh, a motorcycle gang. And they, they were really taking advantage of a young woman. Uh, there was a lot of things that were happening that weren't right. And I stepped in. I said, hey, guys, you got to quit it. And they didn't. And so what I went, I went up to the biggest, the leader, clearly the leader of this gang. And I went right up to him. And I thumped him in the chest. And I knocked down his bike. And I pulled out his nose ring. And I slammed it to the ground. And I said, you better just lay your hands off this young woman. Or you're gonna, all going to mess with me. St. Peter said, that's impressive. When did that happen? He said a couple minutes ago. (laughs) It is pretty funny. But what it really does is it addresses a fallacy that many of us live our lives thinking is true. That at the end of our race, or even the midst of our race, that really finding God's favor... Opening up doors of heaven has something to do with what we have done. And asking the question, are you really qualified? The amazing thing about the story we're about ready to read here is this. is There's one person in the story. There's one who's a Pharisee. Um, and you would think that he would be qualified for God's love because he's memorized most of Scripture He has the longest prayers. He's quoted the most scripture. He's seen as the religious leader of the society. He is the one. When you think of a Pharisee, you're usually thinking this is an educated, well-versed lover of God, you would think. And in the story we're about ready to read, there's not only a Pharisee who goes to pray in a temple, there's another man who's a tax collector. Uh, Maybe some of your uh, translations say a publican. And for us, what in the world is a tax collector? I mean, yeah, we maybe write a check to Earl K. Wood, but he doesn't seem to be that bad of a guy. I don't know him. And again, tax collector in the context for me maybe doesn't mean a whole lot. But to the original hearing audience, when Jesus was telling this parable, it was the contrast between black and white. I want you to see that. He's going to talk about two men who go up to pray. And maybe in our day it would be this. 
There's one who's a preacher. And there's one who's a terrorist. Maybe this. There's one who's a religious leader, a seminary professor. And there's one who's a child molester. And that kind of thought, that kind of contrast of the two probably will give us a better idea of what actually is happening here and the amazement of this story. So turn with me in your Bibles. Let's look to God's holy and errant word. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Today we're continuing actually in Luke. Luke's uh, revealing a lot of our deadly sins. Uh, We're going to come back to Luke a few more times. Let him thump us in the chest. But let us be mindful that it's really not Luke that's speaking to us. Amazingly, it's our holy God who speaks to us. He's given us His Word. We believe that it's holy. It's uh, without error. We believe it will never lead us astray. It will truly lead us to life. And with that, we have to have great reverence for it. It's a love letter to sinners like us. We're going to read the story in Luke 18, verse 9 uh, through 14. And let's do this this morning. We don't always, but just in respect, we, our service is really built around the holiness of God. Let's give God respect. Let's stand as the reading of God's Word. If you don't have your Bible, it should be on the screen behind me. And also, it's in your bulletin, so you can follow along there. God's Word. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Again, think of some of the descriptions I gave you earlier in our terminology. A terrorist, a child molester, a prostitute, someone of that ilk. The Pharisee stood by himself, away from others, and prayed. Listen to this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even lift his eyes or look up to heaven. And he beat his breast. He continued to beat it as if he was trying to discipline his heart. And said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're going to learn what that word, have mercy, really means. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, declared not guilty, Before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be exalted. You may be seated. And let us pray. Father God, the truth is this morning... that the preacher's life oftentimes reflects a lot closer to the Pharisee than it does the tax collector. And in some way, in the midst and the depths of my brokenness and depravity, I think that's a good thing. 
In the reality, Father, there's only one who gets the gospel. And it's not the religious one. Father, this could be really confusing. Because on the surface, it seems like you're showing favoritism to the one who's a really bad sinner. And it seems that you're rejecting the one who was religious. God, we live in a society that people who see us come to this place would say, we're religious. But God, we do not want to miss the good news of the gospel. Never allow, Father, our religion to get in the way of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So the only way that could happen this morning is if you do that what you do each and every week for your glory, is that you come through the power of your Spirit and you speak through a broken sinner like me. Father, we don't need to hear my words. We need to hear yours. So would you please open up our ears to hear from Jesus? Spirit of the living God, would you bring illumination to our minds and so that we can understand this parable of Jesus's? What is he saying to us? Father, right now, right now for your glory, for the health of your church, would your spirit please break up our stony hearts. Father, for all of us who who believe that we have merit to plead before you, that we're self-righteous, God, would you reveal our sin? Would you crush us lovingly? And would you remind us of the good news of the gospel? But God, if all those things happen and we walk out of here and we're not changed, we've missed it. But Father, if because of your presence and your word and because of the reality of your spirit, would you cause us to walk in a manner worthy of this good news? So would you empower our feet so we can walk out of here as obedient children of God? God, as always, we pray that you and you alone receive glory and that we receive great joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen i got two points this morning. The first one is this. As we look at this passage, we see that there's a fallacy. And by the way, there's an uh, insert in your bulletin if you want to follow along with an outline. And the first one is this. The fallacy of self-righteousness. I love this story. Apparently God loves underdogs. Good news. For all of you who don't feel like you measure up, for all of you who feel like, you know, you're one step behind, you're a day late, or there's something missing, there's good news that God seems to love the broken, He seems to love the marginalized, and He seems to love those who just need His grace and mercy. He loves the underdog. Isn't that good news? And He also seems to be a bit angry with those who think they've got it all together. You see, the fallacy of self-righteousness is this. It, first of all, gives us the wrong view of ourselves. Look again in verse 11 and 12. This tax collector, this, uh, sorry, this Pharisee, is going to stand uh, by himself and pray. And basically say, I'm not going to be like anybody else. I'm not a sinner. I'm not like anyone else. Look at me. This Pharisee is saying this. He says, I tithe. I fast twice a week. I have things that I could use to go to God and negotiate. 
That I have earned my way to stand in God's presence. Look at his prayer. I mean, his prayer has, contains absolutely zero forgiveness. He's not going to God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's going to God rejoicing, not in what God has done. You ready for this? He's rejoicing in what? What he has done. And this is what self-righteousness will do. Self-righteousness, when it gets into our hearts and we do religious things, good religious things, it makes us feel as if we have bargaining chips now with God. Now we can say to God, you know, God, I, do, I go to church, I go to equipping center class, you know, I'm contributing to Growing Strong campaign, uh, I, I'm tithing, or at least I'm giving, you know, God, I'm involved in this, I'm involved in that. All these things must earn your favor. Self-righteousness makes us believe that we have something to plead to God, something that we have to leverage God. As a matter of fact, can you believe the depths of this Pharisee? He thinks that his own self-righteousness will make God respond to him as if God were a puppet. Or if God were a, a genie in a bottle. And he's going to do a couple of religious things and all of a sudden he's going to find God's favor. But you know what incredibly he missed? He missed the holiness of our God. He missed the fact that our God is sinless. And if anybody should have known it, it should have been a Pharisee. One who has studied God's word. He should have known Isaiah 64, 6. You know that he had read it. You know that someone trained like this would have heard these words, read these words of Scripture. And here's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. Our righteous acts, those things that we do that we believe are supposedly good and bring us closer to God. Our righteous acts, apart from Christ, are like filthy rags in God's sight. And the literal translation there is really, it's not really appropriate for a PG crowd. It's saying that when you look at God and His holiness, and you look at your own righteousness, you should crumble. We have nothing to plea with God. If we're going to go to God who is a, without sin and say, you know what, I tithe, I go to church, I, I walk old ladies across the street... I give away my money. I do all this thing. See, that's what self-righteousness will do. It'll give us completely the wrong view of ourselves. The the, uh, Pharisee forgot. If you did not know, what Jesus clearly would tell us is this, that we are not saved by our works. That really, God's favor is not found. He's so important to you. If you're visiting and you're wrestling with Christianity and you're maybe trying to find God's pleasure and you're trying to do the right thing, I think that's great. But let me very, be very, very clear. God's pleasure is not found in what we do. It's in who we believe in. Scripture says that it is by God's grace that we are saved. Not by our works. It's by God's grace that we're saved. Through the conduit of faith. Through believing that God is going to provide a Savior that's going to rescue us and and wash us and make us clean. It's by God's grace, God's initiation. He's the initiator. He's the one that makes it possible by, by providing for us a Savior named Jesus. And the way we're linked to that Savior is through faith. Not by works, not in what we do. But it's a gift of God so that no one will boast. 
And here we see self-righteousness in complete opposition to the gospel. The gospel tells us good news. Good news is this. You and I are sinners deserving God's wrath and displeasure. The gospel is good news. God has provided one to set us free. He's provided one who has done that which we should have done and has rescued us through the death on a cross. And we now can be declared justified, not by what we do, but by what we believe in. Think what, the, think what this Pharisee was saying to Jesus. I don't need you. I don't need a Roman cross. There's no reason for you to die. Here was Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. And here was one lost in his self-righteousness, completely alienated from God, and he thought he got it. You know how scary that is? Here's one in the temple of the living God, praying in the view of himself, thinking he had merit to be where God was. And he was lost. The fallacy of self-righteousness. It completely blurs our view of who we are. And then... We have the tax collector. Again, let me just go back and just say this. If we have self-righteousness in our hearts, we are going to miss Jesus. We will miss Jesus. There's no need for God's mercy. But then you have the tax collector. The tax collector, what's his prayer like? The tax collector offers no virtues. He doesn't say he prays. He doesn't say he fasts. He offers no virtues. He offers no excuses. I love that. I'm an excuse machine. Yes, Father, I've sinned, but let me tell you why. Let me tell you how you have somehow caused me to stumble. I'm an incredible uh, machine when it comes to making excuses. But that's not the tax collector. The tax collector's whole posture is going to communicate to us the way he feels. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he wants to say. And there's such good news for each and every one of us here. God hears prayers of the sinners. And you know what he's saying? He says, God, be merciful to me. It's a Greek word that's only used one other time. It's in Hebrews 2, verse 17. And really, it's a word that says, make atonement for me. God, listen, listen, this is really, really amazing. We can't miss this, so lean in on this. What this sinner is saying is this. And by the way, you know what he calls himself? The sinner. The Greek says he's calling himself the sinner. As if there were no one else in the world that sinned, I know I am the sinner. But he knows this about a holy God, that he could do absolutely nothing to clean himself up. That he could do absolutely nothing to find God's favor in himself. That he cannot make the sacrifice. God must. That's the gospel, my brothers and sisters. That's the one who says, be merciful. What he's saying is, God, make an atonement. Be propitious to me. Take away that which is blocking a sinner like me and a holy God. You know what he's asking for? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. The amazing difference between the uh, Pharisee who has a complete wrong view of himself and the tax collector, who all he can say is be merciful. I had a friend who uh, recently had tragedy hit a, a friend of his. Uh, one of his work associates works very closely with her, and, and she has a grown family like he does. And 
Um, she just got word, tragedy, a very difficult story. She just got word that her grown son in his 30s, married man, uh, children, was arrested, was arrested because of some internet use and a 12-year-old girl that he had hooked up with and that he now was going to go and have a rendezvous with his 12-year-old girl. But thank God it wasn't a 12-year-old girl. It was an undercover cop. And so instead of meeting her, he's arrested. His life's undone. He's got shame. The family's got shame. They don't know what to do. I mean, they're so embarrassed. They can't believe this happened to them. I mean, this is my son. He's married. He's a dad. This doesn't happen to us. But sadly, the response was this. How could God allow this to happen? Oh, where's God's blame in this? How could God allow this to happen? You know, my initial response to hearing the story is how, how great our God is that He didn't allow this to happen. And a 12-year-old girl's life being completely ruined at His hands. Thank God He didn't allow it to happen. But they want to sometimes ask the question, well, where is God in a situation like this? And I want to jump up and down and scream and say, this is all about why Jesus came. Listen to this. He came to rescue sinners. I mean, what is God doing to this? God has provided a way out. God has provided his spotless son to rescue sinners like this that can turn to him and plead, saying, I am guilty, I'm guilty, forgive me, and be washed and made as clean as snow. God has made a way that his whole life doesn't have to be marred by this, but he can now be forgiven and be called a child of the king. That's the gospel. And yet we want to run. So how could God allow that to happen? Self-righteousness. We believe that somehow God should keep us from sin. We're the ones that started this whole mess. Listen, God entered into it to relieve us. It gives us a complete wrong view of ourselves. But it gives us a complete wrong view of others too. You know, he stood there in prayer. First of all, it's very important. He stood away. He stood away. He's not going to associate with the slime around him. I mean, they're, they're, they're evildoers. I mean, they're robbers. They're adulterers. He's not going to be stained with sinners. So he's going to pray in a prominent place in the temple. And he's going to be away from all those riffraff. I mean, they're probably Democrats there. I mean, there might be independents. I mean, they're bad people. And he says something amazing. He says, you know, God, I, I thank you that, that I'm not like that one. Oh, man, whew, that's bad. I heard about that reputation. Thank you, I'm not like that one, but I'm really glad I'm not like that one. Oh, tax collector, Woohoo! Man, am I glad I'm not like that. Do you know how often Christians live our lives saying, you know, a word and deed, I'm thankful that I'm not like that. Oh, man. I'm thankful I'm not like that. Listen, self-righteousness gives us the wrong view of others because somehow we think they're different than we are. And the truth of the gospel is this. Listen, you've got to hear this. The truth of the gospel is this. We are sinners saved by grace, okay? Sinners saved by grace. We're just like them. The only difference is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. If we believe we're different from the pagan next to us, we've missed it. 
But by the grace of God, we're different. Only through Christ. You see, when we see others through the lens of the gospel, it sets us free to love them. I don't know what your neighbors are into, and I don't know what they're doing, but I do know this. God's word says we're to follow God and live a life pleasing to him. But we cannot look at them and say, man, I can't believe them. I mean, there's a lot going on in our culture right now. I mean, what's happening in California? What's happening uh, with, with marriages and the institution of marriage? And what we can do as Christians, we can pick some pretty big stones up right now and say, man, you guys are pagans, you're sinners. And yes, what they're doing is not pleasing to God in same-sex marriage. But what we have to do, listen, the power of the Christianity and the gospel is this. They're just like us, except from being saved by God's grace and the work of his son. Therefore, we can love them. Not approve of what they're doing, but we can love them. Not as somebody superior standing off saying, let me judge, 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 judge. But let me love, 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 love. Because the only difference is Jesus' blood in my life. The only difference is God's righteousness clothing me. He gets the glory. He gets the credit. But by the grace of God, there go I. Do we believe it, church? Do we really believe it? I want to tell you we don't. I want to tell you that somehow we believe in our own self-righteousness that we're better. That we're just better. You know, and in the arrogance of our, the uh, Western church, myself included, is Americans, we're just better. We're just smarter. White, we're just better. You know, we're just better at this political party. We're just better. No, we're not. But by the grace of God. Can you imagine if... if, if we as believers really embrace this truth and now can start loving our neighbors freely? Can you imagine the revival if now we're going to engage in conversation with those who aren't living a Christian lifestyle, realizing but but by the grace of God? Can you imagine the power of the humility that would now come and try to lift them up instead of start doing this and banging them on the head? Listen, I want to stand for truth unapologetically. I think you know me. And, and, and when God's Word is being broken. We gotta be, we gotta be bold. But I tell you what, if we do it from a position of self-righteous arrogance, it's wrong. We're in sin. We need to repent. I'm not like other people. Robber. Oh yeah, you're not a robber. You're robbing God's glory. You're standing in his temple, robbing God of his glory. So people look at you and not God. Your life is look at me. Your prayers are look at me. You're a robber of God's glory. Evildoers. Is there a worse evil than hypocrisy? You're a hypocrite. You're worshiping God with your exterior and your interior is nothing but a tomb. I'm not like them. God help us if we live our lives, my brothers and sisters, saying, I'm not like other people, but by the grace of God. You see, salvation by grace means this. God did not come to reward the righteous. Jesus said, listen, I came to seek and to save the righteous, he said. I came to seek and to save those who were really trying hard to get it right. He says, I came to get, clean up those who were cleaning up themselves. I came to help those who helped themselves. Wrong, 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 wrong. He says, I came to what? Seek and save who? Sinners. Jesus came not to reward the righteous that thought that they were earning their way to heaven. He came to offer salvation for the lost. And can't we now see how self-righteousness gets in the way of that truth? Jesus didn't come to reward those who were self-righteous. Jesus came to rescue sinners. 
Salvation by grace means this. No one can ever now feel religiously superior to another. Listen, salvation by grace, okay, that means that God initiated it. It's not by anything I do or have done or said. It's all by God's love for sinners like us. Now that means, the implication of that in our lives means this, that we can never feel religiously superior to another. Because all we are is just like them, but we've been rescued by the blood of the Lamb. Listen, if our Christianity makes us stand away in judgment instead of engaging, if our religion drives us, if this church and all what we believe drives us away from sinners, I believe, big, bold statement, but I believe it true, it drives us away from God. We should have completely separate actions. We should be followers and children, obedient children of the King, but we should be completely together in the way we love them. The Pharisee would not associate with a tax collector, but there's some good news. Jesus would. <laughs> Jesus associated with a tax collector to the point where he was justified and declared not guilty. And we can blow over that and say, oh, those are good religious terms, but let me tell you what that means. Jesus didn't mean it flippantly that he was going to be justified. For Jesus to tell anybody he's going to be justified, he's going to have to bleed to death for him. Okay? This isn't flippant. This isn't, oh, by the way, you're going to be justified. This is, I'm going to lay my life down to make you justified. To make you clean. It's going to cost me my life. It's not going to be something flippant. But he's going to do this. The Pharisee wouldn't associate with the one, but Jesus says, not only am I going to make you clean, I'm going to bring you the family. I'm going to call you son. Son. Not only that, I'm going to share with you everything I have. I'm going to make you an heir of all things. I'm going to let you rule and reign with me. I mean, look at the elevation of this tax collector who's been set free by the grace of God. You have a religious fool who will not associate with him, but we have a loving Savior who says, that's my child. Isn't that good news? Where are we? You know, John the Baptist, he, he, he saw Jesus. And as he saw Jesus, he, he declared, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, here he is. Even in his name, Jesus, Matthew says, because he's going to come and he's going to save us people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did the Pharisees completely miss it? They didn't know they were sinners. They were self-righteous. And they missed it. Where are you? Where are you standing? Are you standing in judgment? Are you standing in judgment of a world that just says, you know, to hell in a handbasket out there. I'm thankful that I'm not like them. Or are we realizing that we're sinners saved by grace? You've got to realize that self-righteousness is rejected by God. It's rejected by God. One went home justified in his own eyes. You know, this poor Pharisee, he didn't think he needed to be justified. <laughs> there was no prayer of forgiveness. He just, I was fine. God, thank you. I'm tithing. I'm, really, I'm doing good stuff. I'm fasting twice a week. I'm good in my own eyes. But one went home completely not guilty in God's eyes. I have good news. God loves sinners. He demonstrates that love by sending his son Jesus. And I got some really, really great news. He still does. God loves sinners. 
And he still does. And you know what he's still opposed to? The self-righteous. What does Psalm 51, 16, and 17 tell us that God wants? A broken spirit, a contrite heart. You know what he wants us to be? Broken before him. And somehow, I think most of you who are Christians would say, yes, Jeff, I get that, but now I'm beyond that. I'm saying, whoa, 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 we can never get beyond that. God loves sinners. God loves a broken heart. God loves those who are honest with themselves. God loves the sorrowful, the, the penitent, the brokenhearted. That's what Jesus accepts. And somehow I think in Christianity, especially in the West, that we believe that we're saved by God's grace and that we started off as sinners and we got the Jesus thing going and now all of a sudden we're no longer sinners. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're to live our lives with a self-righteous air. I love what Paul says. Paul said, the longer I grew with Christ, the more I lived with Him, the more I walked with Him, the more I realized what a sinner I am. Listen, some of you have been a Christian a long time. And if you don't feel like you're more of a sinner today than you did the day you started, I don't think you're growing in Him. Because the closer you get to the light, the more dirt you see. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how much you need Him and how beautiful He is and how perfect He is. You know, Paul will say this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Listen up, Paul says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And he believed it. He believed it. He believed that his heart was prone to wander. He believed that the darkness and depravity had nothing to offer. See, Christians, listen, if we get this, we get a little change, revolutionize this church, Christianity. We are saved by God's what? We live by God's what? We die by God's what? Grace. Today, whoever you are, a child of the king, you're a child of the king, but you're a sinner. And you're just saved by grace, nothing else. Other than the work of Christ, you're a sinner. And you've been saved by God's grace. We have nothing to boast except for in the cross of Christ Jesus. We have nothing to boast except for in his righteousness. We have nothing to boast except in a merciful God. We are saved by grace, we live by grace, and we die by God's grace in Christ. And then there's the exaltation of humility. Again, the gospel freedom of humility, and I'm going to go quick here. Um, at the very end of this passage, he says, Jesus says, listen, uh, to those who think they're self-righteous, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be one of those ones in Matthew 7 where say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name, and Jesus is going to say, just, just get away, I don't know you. You thought you were mine, but you're not. But he's going to say to those of us who realize that we don't deserve this incredible love that we've been given, that we realize that we are so broken and so undone, but we've been set free, he's going to say, I'm going to lift you up. You see, the gospel freedom of humility is this. There's freedom to be honest. There's freedom to be honest. There's such good news. I want you to get this, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to live your life out there like you're Jesus Christ. Live your life out there like you're a sinner in love with Jesus Christ. It's a big difference. And now you have the freedom to be honest. You have the freedom to live your life as a broken man or woman or young person that needs Jesus. And just don't be broken to be broken. But when you mess up, that's why I believe in Jesus. Because, man, he loves sinners. And I'm one of them. The gospel gives us freedom to be honest. Honest about the truth of who we are and who we are in Christ. And, boy, is there power in that. Freedom, to be honest. The gospel gives us power of humility. 
God will exalt us. Listen, we can say that we don't deserve any of this. I don't. I mean, it's not look at me, I'm Sandra D. It's look at me, I'm a broken sinner that needs Jesus. And the last thing is this. The gospel gives us greatness. The greatness of humility. And here's what I mean. God wants you to live your life following Jesus Christ. And God wants you to live your life completely different than the pagans who don't know him. God wants you to be a follower and an imitator of himself. But he wants you now to do it knowing that you're a sinner saved by grace. And listen to this, listen to this. Compelled by love. Sinner, rescued by Jesus, he loves you. And he's not changing his mind. Sinner, saved by grace, may the reality of his love now compel you and me to live our lives in obedience to him. Now may the love of Christ make us walk in a manner worthy of the gospel because we already got it. And when we stumble and fall, we acknowledge that God, here I am again a sinner, set me free and wash me once again. Christianity is not about being qualified. It's an amazing thing. It's about being disqualified. And then in the midst of our disqualification, finding great joy and relief in a Savior. God does provide a substitute. He does set us free. His name is Jesus. Where is he in your life? The self-righteousness clouding your view. Or by God's grace, are you a sinner clinging to Jesus? You see, that's why we love the cross. That's why we're people of the cross. Because at the cross, we've been set free. At the cross, our sins have been paid. At the cross, justification has been made. At the cross, we've been brought home. Let us pray. And Father God, I pray for each and every one of us that have the propensity to believe that somehow in our religious stuff, the things we do, our prayers, our church attendance, our tithes, or whatever, that somehow we're leveraging your favor. Somehow you're, you're going to be indebted to us because we're good little Christians. And God, I thank you for the truth of the gospel that says that's completely not it. You're a sinner, just like other sinners. And the only difference, and it's a big one, it's a huge one, it's an eternal one, You've been saved by God's grace through the work of His Son and you're mine. And I love you. Father, forgive me for the many times that my self-righteousness has kept me from seeing you clearly. Forgive me for leading this church in a way where it's about me and not about you. God, and forgive my brothers and sisters. May your Spirit of the living God press upon each one of our hearts. God, I really believe if we get this, we're going to, the revival in this church, the revival in this community, the revival in our hearts will set us free. Jesus, thank you that you came to rescue sinners. Thank you that you didn't lose one. Thank you that you found us and you died for us. And thank you for the wonderful cross that makes us clean. And God, we ask now, we live in light of that, compelled by the love of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing about that wonderful cross.